Hello and welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. This is John Green and I'm your host. It is Palm Sunday 2021 and we are here to celebrate the the coming of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem as its king. And, and it's a wonderful thing, but if you're in a Palm Sunday service, and at least in a liturgical church, what happens is you start outside the building and you start with palm branches and you take those palm branches and you're waving them as you sing all glory laud and honor to the redeemer king it's a wonderful song and it's a wonderful moment of participating in that entire encounter when jesus comes into the city of jerusalem at the beginning of the week of passover which actually begins today the day that i'm recording this which is um, the 27th of March, the day before. So it, we, we're immersing ourselves in the moment, um, in the historical moment, by doing so. And as we, we come into the sanctuary singing that song, waving those palm branches, and then the whiplash of Palm Sunday is is that not too terribly long after we do that, we move immediately into a reading of a passion gospel. I mean, we're just, we're talking about working through a very small piece of liturgy before we move from Palm Sunday into the the entirety of the Passion Gospel this year, it's um, it's two chapters actually that we read, and it, it reads. I mean, the whole thing of the trial of Jesus. Well, it begins with the betrayal of Jesus, and then all the way through the trial and the crucifixion, and it's just it's too much. Honestly, it's I've never been a huge fan of Palm Sunday because it feels like we don't stay in the moment, and it's partly because. We've adjusted the liturgy for the reality that people either can't or won't participate in a more daily sort of a liturgy of the Holy Week. And so we collapse everything into that one day in order to kind of prepare people for what's going to come next. There's some good in it. You know, it's it's good to remember that that initial burst of energy and the proclamation of Jesus as King didn't last long. You know, it was a rough kind of a tension-filled week as he taught every day in the temple, and the he was confronted nearly every day by somebody, or he was, in, as in Matthew, you know, he's, he's constantly, during that week, pronouncing woes to the scribes and the Pharisees and calling them hypocrites, and uh, it's, it's uh, a tension-filled week in a lot of ways, and you could imagine as a disciple that you, went, you were going through that week thinking, what's he going to say next? Who's he going to make mad next? And what's going to happen? With all that, but but we can't stay in the moment very well, and so the what I want to do today, uh, partly because I'm not conducting a worship service, is that I can sit just for today, <laughs> in in the uh, events of Palm Sunday, and so I, I want to celebrate that with you today. I want to look at that moment and, and kind of give context and, and see, you know, how do we do this same thing. How do we enthrone Jesus, and how do we, how do we receive Him as our King, and 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 on on whose terms? Because that's the most important part, I think, of Palm Sunday, is on whose terms do we crown Him the King? So I sit here this morning, having gone through a rough day yesterday. Um, you know, for anybody who might not know, our son Will um, had a horrible accident. I don't know what you'd call it. A week ago. And, and he's been in, in intensive neurotrauma intensive care for the last week. And it's been a, a, a trying week, to say the least. We have no earthly idea what's going to happen next. We feel so completely out of control and bereft because, 
you know, there's the constant fear that we're going to lose him over anything that happens. And so we had a, a rough day yesterday and still not sure exactly what happened and why it happened. Um, but hey, I, I didn't get a phone call last night, which is a fabulous thing. So the phone call would only have been if there had been bad news. So uh, here we sit and here we pray and here we watch. And so it's um, it, it's an odd time, but but I'm trying to learn something from this. I'm, God's trying to teach me something. That's the important part. Is God's trying to see, teach me something, and what He's teaching me primarily seems to be just to to wait, which I've never been very good at, um, and, and to hope, to carry that hope all the time that He is, He's God, and and He can do anything but must he is really the question and i can't tell you that that i can answer it perfectly certainly i'm prepared for something that might happen bad and 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 i still believe no matter what that he is god and and the two most important things i can believe about him is he is great which it which says that he can do all things and it's partially because i know that he is I've seen him do great things, and I know that he created the universe and he sustains it and he redeemed it by the sacrifice of his son. And so I know that he can do great things. I know that he is great in a sense that nothing else on earth can be great because nothing literally is impossible for him. He can suspend the laws of physics, chemistry, biology, everything. He, he created them. He, he has the, the secret um, unlock key. He knows all the cheats, I guess is the best way to say it for gamers, for instance. But God knows all the cheats, and he knows how to do things that the rest of us cannot do. And I've seen him do those things. So I know that God is great, and, and he is the only being that can be described as great. And his majesty is, is everywhere we look as we look around us. And his majesty is most clearly seen in one another, those who are created in his image and intended to bear that image to the world, uh, intended to convey his love to the world. And the way we love one another is, is a, a huge sign of that. And it's a, it, it, you can't imagine, until you go through something like this, you can't really imagine how much that actually means for people to be lifting you up in prayer and reaching out and saying, John, I'm just thinking about you matters way more than you could ever begin to imagine. So God's great. And the second thing is I know that God is good. It's this little prayer that I learned when I was a kid, right? We would say it over meals, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Thank you, God, for daily bread. And, and it's true, and, and that's the, the sort of gratitude we need to live in, is that he, 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 the fact that God is great need not imply that he's also good. He needn't be good. But he is, and that truly is amazing. And when you think about um, like the myths maybe that you learned when you were in high school or whatever, and perhaps you studied some of them in college, but if you look at other myths about um, uh, from other cultures about the god or gods that they worship, um, fear would be certainly one of the things that you would say was characteristic of the worship of those gods. But... Um, it, it's not the same kind of fear that you have, uh, that, that you're called to have. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and so the, the, that, that's his greatness, is fearing his greatness because he has such power.
But with the other gods, you have to fear them because they're capricious and they're self-centered. They're, they're no less or no more than than we are. They have the same passions, desires. They're unpredictable. And you fear stuff that's unpredictable like that. And that's kind of where fear comes from in our own lives. It is where fear is coming from in my life now. And that comes from the, the fact that I've been thrown into something that I don't know and I don't understand, and I feel like I'm over my head. The water hasn't reached my neck. It's over my head. And so fear is there because it's it's something that happened that's unpredictable, but it doesn't mean God's unpredictable. It doesn't mean that God is capricious. It means that, that we live in a world that's broken by sin, and, and because of that, we, we should mourn. We should mourn that this world is not what God created because He's good. And he's the only being in the world, in the universe, in the whatever, that is good. That, that's exactly as it ought to be. And who loves those created in his image. And he loves his own creation. Um, whether that's us or anything else in creation, he loves it. He valued it greatly. He wouldn't have brought it into being if he didn't have great value for it and didn't think that it was perfect in its being. And so we have a, a God who is great and who is good, and those two things are important for us to constantly remember because we can be fearful of his greatness and thankful for his goodness all the time. So when we look at the lessons for Palm Sunday, what we're proclaiming is is that we're proclaiming greatness and goodness all at the same time as Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem to become its king. And he's proclaiming his kingship by the way that he comes in, that he comes in on a donkey, but he's proclaiming a specific kind of kingship. He's proclaiming kingship um, in fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah 9. Where Zechariah writes, Behold, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious. He is humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, on the foal of an ass. That's the King James Version. And so Jesus comes in exactly this way in fulfillment of, of this particular prophecy of Zechariah's. And I don't normally do this, but I'm, but I'm going to start with the gospel today because I think that it has so much to say to us, and it's from Mark 11, the first 11 verses. And so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for the beginning of the Passover feast, and he's coming with his disciples, but it's not just with his disciples that he comes. He has come from Galilee, and he's coming to Jerusalem. And so on the way, they have joined in this this um, pilgrim band of people who are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover from all parts of the world. Literally, And so you've got these Jews from the diaspora, the ones who don't live in Jerusalem. There's not room in Jerusalem for all of them. And so they, they live all over the world and they begin to come to Jerusalem for this pilgrim feast of Passover, the most important feast in so many ways because it celebrates the deliverance of God's people by God from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. But it you know kind of continues all the way through the, the, the story of, of why Jerusalem is even a, a a Jewish center of worship, and so it, it, the fact that that exists is due simply to the fact that he delivered his people from Egypt. So <clears throat> they're coming with these, and as they're coming, Jesus does miracles along the way, like healing blind Bartimaeus and other blind people along the way, and he does other kinds of things, and, and, and the buzz is growing, and it's growing partially largely maybe, because of the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, which had happened not too long before this, and and that's a problem. 
because they're out to get him because he's done this miracle. The, the leaders in Jerusalem are. And so his problem is, is really not with the Jews who are from outlying regions. It's really just from the Jews in Jerusalem. And you can see it sort of in uh, some of the entrance stories because you can see this ominous note that he comes in with uh, great acclaim. But then as they draw into the city and come closer to the temple, which is where they're headed, then, then you begin to hear the, the, the murmurs. And they're asking the disciples to stop this mob from proclaiming Jesus because this could be a problem. The Romans could crack down on us, and we don't want that, particularly not right now at the time of Passover. And so they're coming into town. They're coming to Bethpage and to Bethany, which is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and then to the Mount of Olives. And at that point, Jesus sends the two of his disciples into the city and says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. So the, the buzz about Jesus is such that when they say the Lord has need of this colt, that it becomes an, oh my gosh, kind of a moment that the Lord, the King, the, the one who is the rightful heir of David's throne, has need of this cult. And that's good enough because they know who he is. They know who it is that needs this, and, and, and they are believing that they're offering something amazing. And so they bring this colt to Jesus. And they throw their cloaks on it as sort of a saddle, a cushion. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. Others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And so... What you get is, are, are these pilgrims who have been with them, this huge band of people. There are some in front of him and some in the back of him. They're all shouting about the king, and it's actually the way that kings entered cities when they came for royal visits. But they had their own heralds. They had their, they had their soldiers. They had employees, essentially. And here what we've got is a popular uprising, and so you have the people proclaiming Jesus to be king. And here comes the king into his kingdom. And he comes on a donkey. And that donkey is a symbol of peace, not of war. A horse would have been a, an act of war. But he, he, this king doesn't come with chariots and soldiers and heralds and bands. No, he comes with people. And those people are acclaiming him to be the king their king, the messianic king, the one who will sit on the throne of David, who will rule over them, his kingdom, forever and ever. And then he entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. A royal procession would have gone to the throne. It would have gone to the king's palace, where a throne would be there waiting for him to ascend to that throne and, and rule 
over his people, take his rightful place. Jesus goes to his rightful place. He goes to the temple. And he begins there. He looks around at everything as it was already late. And so he went out of Bethany with the twelve. And so he comes to the temple, looks around, takes it all in, sees what's going on in his house. And then he goes back out to Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are. And he takes the disciples. It was a, a grand entrance. But that day he didn't make any proclamations, didn't do any teaching. He just looked around. He did what Nehemiah did, frankly, when Nehemiah came back to, to oversee the rebuilding of Jerusalem in his day. He came and he just looked around. He made a survey of the situation before he began the actual work and the, made a plan. So Jesus comes and he sees. And he leaves. He took it all in. I can't imagine, honestly. I mean, there's no way, because we're not him, to imagine what he's thinking in all this time, knowing what's actually going to happen. For all the world, it looks at this moment like the time has come. You can imagine being a disciple. You can imagine being one of those pilgrims. You can imagine being anybody who believed. You can imagine any of the people that he healed of various things. Seeing this, hearing this, experiencing it, you can see them right in your mind's eye. You can see these people along the road, the ones who he's healed, this, this legion of the, the, the healed proclaiming Jesus to be king, proclaiming him to be Messiah. We can do the same thing, right? I mean, we can. I, I, I can make Will's healing, for instance, I can make that the condition on which Jesus can be my king. Everybody there had expectations of one sort or another for, for what it would mean to have a messianic king. And they were all wrong. Jesus was not going to do and be that king. He would be the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied. He'd be the one who laid down his life for us. He came to make atonement for sin, to make the new creation possible, the inbreaking of the kingdom into this world, the, the first creation. But that's not what Jesus did. They didn't recognize him. They were still looking for a man who would be king, and Jesus is a man. But in Paul's epistle that we read today, which is Philippians 2, 5 to 11, Paul tells us something about how we are to react to Jesus being king in our lives and how do we allow him to sit on that throne. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have the Holy Spirit, so have this mind as well, who though he was in the form of God, and, and what that kind of says is that he existed in the form of God. That there's, a, there's verb changes here. Um, even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what that means is like seized. It's, it's to take something by force. It's robbery. But, but he, he let go that thing. He, he, he didn't hold it lightly. He laid it down 
is a better way to say it. He, he, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be held on tenaciously for all it's worth and to never let go of it. <clears throat> it no, it was a thing that he willingly laid down in love. And he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So he was in the form of God, but he took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men, and he was found in human form. He existed in the form of God, but he took the form of a servant, and he was found in human form. So he continued to be God because that was his essay, his existence, his being. But he took the form of a servant and he emptied himself in order to do it. And we don't, that, that word kenosis there, it's a huge thing. Is what did Jesus know and how much was he emptied? And that's not really the issue here. What, what I'm trying to get across to you is, is that he never laid down because he couldn't stop being God. It was his essence. It was his being. But, but he took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And then beyond that, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and Paul's saying that's the mindset we need to take. We need to give up our preconceived notions or all the things that we think we need because the reality is because of sin, we don't know what we need. We think we need this miracle. We think we need this thing, whatever it is. And we're constantly doing to Jesus what they did to Jesus. You've got to prove yourself to me today. There's something new. No, he, he, he is enough. What he has done at that cross is enough. But he didn't stop there. He gives us more and more and more. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He, he gives us life. He gives us hope. He gives us brothers and sisters. He gives us so much in this world that it's absolutely unbelievable. And we need to embrace that reality that, that Jesus is enough all by himself. All that he has done for us is, is what we need. And when we come to that place of, of what I really need is a savior, then we can begin to move on in life from there and we can begin to embrace all that he has done. And, and But then we can also take on the same idea, the same desires that he does, which is to, be, to become a servant, which is exactly what he tells them at the Last Supper, that the, the least of these will be greatest, and the one who serves will be greater than the one who is served, and all that kind of stuff. He, he says, what you believe about life is really upside down from the truth. And so to take on the mind of Christ is to take on that mind that to be a servant is far better than to be the one being served and, and to follow his example in laying down our lives and become, becoming obedient to the Father just as he was obedient to the Father no matter what the cost, that to know that this is good for me no matter if it hurts no matter if it causes me to, to spin into a whirlwind of, of doubts and fears, it's still good for me. And then because he did that, because of that, that becoming obedient even unto death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. He was seeking to glorify the Father. He wasn't seeking the cross. 
He knew that it would involve the cross, but his, his seeking was to glorify the Father on earth in whatever he did at everything he did. And so because he humbled himself and was obedient even to death on a cross, even though that he wasn't seeking that cross, then, then his name has been exalted above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul says that, that the key... The key to life, the key to eternal glorification is to become obedient to the Father, to lay down any claim we have to anything at all, empty ourselves, take on the form of a servant, and be obedient even to the point of death and follow Him. If, if we would see Jesus, if we would truly know Him, then, it, then it's in the becoming like him and laying down everything for him. And that's a painful thing. But we've got to allow him to be king on his own terms, not on our terms. And it's easy to ask him for those things. But even John the Baptist, when, when he sends his emissaries, when he's in prison, he sends emissaries to say, are you really the Christ or is there another one to come? And, and Jesus responds by saying, tell him what you see. And he talks about the fulfillment of so many things. The blind see, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, all that kind of stuff. But he leaves out from the same scripture passage, he leaves out and the prisoners are set free. So even though Jesus has done all these things, John's miracle that he needs, the captives to be set free isn't going to happen. Jesus doesn't mention it. He quotes everything else from that passage except for the captives being set free. And, and, and so John's got to even at that moment rely on faith and say, even if you don't do this for me, I still believe that you're the Messiah. It's the same thing that Martha says that um, if you'd been here, our brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you anything you ask. And he's not, she's not saying that, that, that he'll bring my brother back from the dead. He, he says, she's saying, even though you didn't do what I needed you to do, I still believe that you are him. You're the one. And so we have to let go of our conditions. He's not conditionally king. He just is. And if we can let go of those conditions, then we can enthrone him even more in our lives, and then we can proclaim him even more in the world because he is truly king when he doesn't do the thing you need. If you can put him on the throne at that point, then, then you can put him on the throne after that. But, but he needs that throne before. And, and we're constantly being taken to that place of... of, of, of being sort of lost because death is going to come for all of us and it's going to come for everybody we know and everybody we love and so the 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 situation becomes all right so if he doesn't do these things is he still king in my life because yes he's king in all the world but he's still king in my life if he doesn't do the things that i want the things that i need frankly so isaiah tells us the Lord's given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who's weary. 
Warning by warning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And he's clearly speaking here. We can see this in the passion of Christ in this week. But he says, The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And that's a great reminder of of all the things, all the miracles, all the stuff that we need him to do. It'll all pass away, whether those are people or whether they're things. And so we're called to come to him and say, I'm going to lay down everything I think I need, everything that's really important to me, and I'm going to try and do it just like you did. Because I know in that there's great glory and there's something beyond anything that this world can give me. There's something that will last forever. We're not called to hate this world. It'd be stupid to say that because we quote John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is his creation. It remains his creation in spite of its fallen nature, in spite of the pain and suffering we experience here. It's still something that's so precious to him that he sent his son in here to redeem it. He didn't destroy it. He redeemed it. And so we're to love like he loves. We're to love creation. We're to love other people. We're to love him like he loved the Father and set his glory above his own, in spite of the fact that, that his glory was contingent upon doing all these things in the earth. And so it's a call. Palm Sunday is a call to enthrone him. And this week is a call to grieve the fact that he is rejected and despised. And when we've set anything else above him, we have likewise rejected and despised him in his glory. In the precious name of Jesus, I speak these words to you today. Amen.